All right, so we are continuing in the book of Romans. Today we are finishing chapter, what? Chapter 2, yes. And as we come to the conclusion of chapter 2, I just want to mention that the scriptures, uh, as they were originally written, they actually... um, did not include verses and chapters, right? This, is, this was a later edition uh, in order to make it easy for us to find references in the Bible. Uh, but the, the verses and the chapters were added in the 1200s in order to make it easier. Uh, sometimes when we do that, because the way the chapters and the verses are broken, it seems as though the thought process could be interrupted. So... As we read scripture, specifically here in in chapter 2, going to chapter 3, let's remember that, that we need to follow the thought pattern that the scripture is giving us. In this case, that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving us. Okay, so let us uh, take our Bibles out, or we can follow along here in the screen. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 25 through 29. The authoritative authoritative and infallible word of God reads as follows. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, for his praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning to learn, to be instructed, to be corrected by your word, may your Holy Spirit do that work in us. Lord, instruct us how to think, how to behave, and warn us of the false security we can fall into by trusting in the outward things of our lives. When a heart remains unchanged, may that not be, Lord. Help us then to trust only in the work of Christ. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So I titled this sermon, God is Impartial, Part 3. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of times in our lives when we are evaluated by our performance. Something that I experienced and was really tough on me was being evaluated during my undergrad studies, specifically in engineering. I think I was traumatized by a specific course, Aerospace Structures. And that class was like any other class because 
There were typically two approaches to grading that professors took in the university system. The first method goes something like this. The students come into class the first day of class or the first week, and the teacher says, hey, everybody, I got good news. Right now, all of you have an A. All you have to do is show up to class, complete your assignments, study for the final exam, and you're going to be good. So that kind of sounds pretty appealing, right? Okay, I'm good. From the get-go, I'm pretty good. And there was a main second method, which was the one used in this course that I'm remembering. It wasn't like the first. Rather, on the first day of class, I remember my professor comes into class and said something along the lines of, right now, all of you have an F. How about that, right? It says, if you want to get a good grade in my class, you're going to have to show me that you're learning. You're going to have to show me that you are tracking with what I'm teaching because what you apply after you go and get a job in the industry, people's lives are going to depend on your work. It's like there's no such thing as grading on a curve. You have to show me that you know the material. And he says, once it's said and done at the end of the course, I will assign to you the grade that you deserve. Now, if an analogy could be made from being evaluated based on how well we do in a course, if we take that to the spiritual realm, what is the spiritual condition of every human being if we were to use one of these two grading methods. Is it more like the first method where right off the bat you're good? All you have to do is behave and you'll be fine? Or is it more like Professor Giada's method, the second one, which on arrival you're a failure? The world would like to tell us that you're actually pretty good. But if we think about what scripture says, if we think through the condition of man, we quickly realize that we are in trouble. That there is no, no such thing as innocence before God. That we are fallen, we are living in a fallen world, and we sin by nature and choice. Therefore, on the, from the get-go, we are condemned. Out of our mother's womb, we're infected with original sin. And this, my brothers and sisters, is not in an attempt to scare us or to grieve us, although we should. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is for us to realize that we need a Savior because we are not going to be graded on a curve. And we need the Savior who can give us the perfection that is required to either issue, if you will, a grade of fail or 100% pass with perfection. There's no in-between. So the letter to the Romans, here in chapter 2, Paul's intent is to show that God is impartial. Let us go to Romans 2.11. That's exactly what Paul says. For God shows no partiality. 
That is, if we think about it about being evaluated, when God judges, he will judge rightly and perfectly as the perfect and holy judge that he is. And therefore, he will not show partiality when it comes to judging a person. Now again, the reminder of what we mean when we talk about partiality. Partiality is a biblical concept. It has been corrupted in many ways, where in today's culture, if you disagree with someone, they accuse you of the sin of partiality. It is most seen these days as being accused of the sin of racism. And it has been turned completely on its head. Right? So we must keep in mind, what is partiality really? In summary, partiality, biblically speaking, is basing the treatment of a person or a group of people on something that should not be the basis of the treatment. For example, favorable treatment due to someone's skin color. Favorable treatment due to someone's social status. Or the reverse of that. Showing contempt, showing discrimination based on those factors. And the truth is that humans do show partiality. We do show partiality. We unrightly show favor or discrimination to others. Our judgment may be cloudy because we are sinful. And it, become, it becomes partiality based on our preferences. The Bible warns us about that, to not be partial. And Paul says God is impartial. God will judge righteously and perfectly. So as Paul is driving that thought, and he is really expanding on this thought of God being a right, just judge of mankind, he addresses two groups of people. Those that do not have the law, meaning the Gentiles, and what their predicament is, right? We saw that earlier in this sermon series. In a nutshell, is that they are not excused. They don't get a pass. Because, as we learned today in Sunday school, God has placed his moral law on people. Even on the ones who are heathens. Then the second group of people that... Paul is addressing are those that do have the law. And we are learning that instead of then being in a favorable position, we quickly are finding that they are in even more trouble than the Gentiles, than the heathens that did not have the law. And that's counterintuitive, right? If these people do have the law, they should be all set. And we quickly are seeing that instead of that being the case, as was the intent, if they kept the, the commands, we find that they are condemned either in a greater way than those that don't have the law. When Paul is referring here, those that have the law, those that keep the law, those that obey the law, we're talking about the Torah. This is not just the Ten Commandments. This is the literal meaning of Torah, teaching, direction, instruction of God. Found in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that contains the laws of God, the instruction of God to his people. 
And Paul is building this case that the people of the covenant of God, they can't keep it. They can't do it. So he's stripping away any false security that these people may have. And he's building this to a climax of what are the implications of people not being able to keep their side of the deal, their side of the covenant that they have with God. We will see this starting to take shape in Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We kind of discussed that, right? We beat that horse, right? And then, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Oh, thank the Lord for the good news. See that? But we cannot fully realize that later, the second half of the good news, if we don't fully grasp the bad news that we all have sinned. And then again, that theme is repeated specifically in Romans 6. It's all over, but this verse is grab it and concisely put it. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bad news, we've been talking about that. Everybody's condemned, aside from the grace of God. But the free gift, the free gift. So this then hints to us that although we cannot keep covenants with God perfectly, that we are going to be given a gift, that a promise is going to be given to us so that we can look to a God who is righteous and holy and will not be partial, and yet, there's going to be a way for us to be spared of that righteous judgment and be given a not guilty verdict. In this, then, we are awakened to the truth that God is impartial. Judgment is coming. And there's no way out of that judgment in and of ourselves. We need a Savior. We need a free gift. More on that a bit later. So this passage in Romans 2 that we just read. Paul is dealing with potential objections from Jewish believers. From his fellow Jews, right? And some of the Jewish audience that is hearing this might have thought, Okay, I see the points that Paul is making. I cannot be pointing to us being chosen. God says, no, our nationality is not going to show us favor when it comes to judgment. What about the superiority of knowing the law, of having the books of God, having the instruction of God? Paul has told him, no, that's not going to save you either. None of those things are going to show you favor with God. Why? And Paul here is disclosing that the reason why those things are not going to be of any favor to them is because although they are Jewish, they are Israelites by blood, they are not the people of God. They are not Jews by their heart. Although they are a chosen nation, they have betrayed the one who has chosen them. Although they have received the law of God, the special revelation of God in the Torah, and they have that knowledge, yet they remain hearers and not doers. Knowledge without obedience. 
And in this passage we read today, think of it as the last ditch effort of the Jewish person to say, okay, fine. I'll give you that, Paul. Now, I have an ace in the hole, so to speak. We have something else that you haven't told us about. What about our circumcision? Aha! And then Paul, boom, gives it to them, right? One commentary that I heard this week on an audio commentary was saying that in the writings of Paul, specifically in the epistles, is sort of like listening to someone talking on the phone because they're right there with you. And you don't know what the other party is saying to them, but you can kind of gather what the conversation is because you do know what this person next to you is saying. So the book of Romans is like Paul is speaking to someone and we know what the conversation is like because we hear what Paul is saying. Even though we don't know exactly what his Jewish audience is thinking, we get these clues. Today is that they're telling him, hey, Paul, what about a circumcision? Like, I mean, that should, that should trump everything else, right? And Paul says, no. So Paul talked about something that he referred to as the obedience of faith. Let's go back to Romans 1, verse 5. In talking about the power of the Lord Jesus, Paul said the following, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So then why is Paul talking about circumcision, right? As we try to gather and connect the dots of why he's going there now. There are times in scripture when we're tracking along, following a pattern, and all of a sudden something is brought in that we think, why would he now talk about this? Why would Paul now talk about circumcision? Like, what does that have to do with anything? The answer is, as Paul has made the case that the Jewish listeners are in trouble if they think that their ancestry is going to give them favor with God, this is the last attempt, right? Hey, what about a circumcision? Isn't that something? And Paul says, nope. Not even your circumcision will show you special favor because God is impartial. So what is the application for that, of that thought for us today? Please don't think, well, you know, I'm not a Jew, so I'm good. No, my friends, this has direct application to us. There is a direct parallel. Many today can claim something such as, well, how can God not show me favor? I've been baptized. How can God not show me favor? I've partaken of the Lord's Supper. Like, isn't that what Christians do? And Paul is telling us God shows no partiality. Let's keep that in mind. So here's the key then of today's message. Summarizing three points. The unfaithfulness of the Jewish people invalidates their covenant sign, their circumcision. It's invalidated because of their unfaithfulness. We're going to see this in three parts. First, 
we're going to see the value of circumcision. Because we cannot say, well, then, you know, it's, there's no value in circumcision. Well, there is. And what is that value, right? Secondly, we're going to see the validation of circumcision. That is, that if the promise is kept on behalf of the Jewish people, they're going to be obedient to the sign of their covenant. And then thirdly, we're going to see the basis of true circumcision. That is, an inward change which is expressed externally, even to those who are not physically circumcised. Okay? So let's look at the value of circumcision. Romans 2.25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So why are the Jewish people required to keep this in the first place? By circumcision, we learn that it is a physical sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. Let's look at Genesis 17, verses 12 and verses 14. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So why is it important? Why is it a value? Why is that physical sign valuable? Now bear with me for a moment. We need to understand the concept of God working in covenants and covenant signs in order for us to drive home the point of today's sermon, okay? The pact, the covenant that God made with Abraham is summarized in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Let's take a quick look. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is God's promise. What did he promise? Land, descendants, and that from within that, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham's descendants. And ultimately, is fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus. So this is the deal then that God is making with Abraham and with his people for that matter. This is God's promise to them. There's two major types of covenants, of agreements in the ancient times. A parity covenant, meaning someone who is on par with you. An agreement between two equal parties. And then there's the suzerain vassal covenant, which is an agreement, a pact, an alliance, if you will, between two unequal parties. The suzerain party is a kingship, someone who is way above the vassal party. That reflects the covenant that God makes with his people between two unequal parties, the king and those that are much less. 
What does that include? That includes a promise. Land, descendants, blessings. God says, I will give you that. Now, what is the responsibility of the lesser party? Obedience. Obedience. And the way they seal that covenant, right in modern times when we make an agreement, even between marriage, even between a business partnership or a contract, what do we do? We sign. And now we're contractually bound. In these times, there was a sign. Like we know that we've made this pact, this agreement, by a physical sign. In the case of the Jewish people, it was the sign of circumcision. That's how they sealed their agreement. And sometimes, like in Genesis 15, we see that they would cut an animal in half. And those partaking of the agreement would walk between those two pieces of animal in order to see the split animal, seeing the blood to reflect, may God do so to us if we break our agreement. So something very serious. So now, let's get our train of thought back now. This is why circumcision is of great value. Because it reflects the outward sign showing that those people belong to God. And that is to be shown to the rest of the nations that they are specifically chosen for a purpose by God. And the responsibility of those people when God is going to bless them is to keep their side of the agreement is to be obedient to God. That's why circumcision was such a big deal to the people of God. Now, the obvious question is, did the Jewish people keep their side of the bargain? No, they didn't. And something that we see throughout Scripture is that when God makes a covenant, God makes provision so that the lesser party will have the available resources, if you will, in order for them to keep the covenant. But because of our fallen nature, because of our sinful nature, we disobey, we refuse. But God is faithful to keep his promises. So that's the value of circumcision. Okay, now, how is circumcision validated? That's point number two, validation of circumcision. How can we determine whether circumcision is authentic? It is actually valid. It, it really means something. Romans 26 226 and 27 it says so if a man is uncircumcised if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in an uncircumcision but break the law so again the jewish argument being answered here is if all else fails, if we can be shown any favor for being the chosen people, surely our physical sign depicting that we are in a covenant with God, that's going to be of value to us, isn't it? And Paul's rebuttal here is pretty straightforward. I've depicted it in a sort of an equation mode, 
right? Forgive me, I'm an engineer, but I think it makes sense. What is that? Let's take a quick look. Paul's depicting here is an uncircumcised man who obeys God is going to be judged as circumcised. Uncircumcised plus obedience equals circumcised. Whereas circumcised man who disobeys God, circumcision plus disobedience equals uncircumcised. Judgment. A way to think about a covenant sign is to make it a little bit more personal. Some of us are married. Traditionally and culturally, we express that covenant promise that we made to our spouse through a ring. Right? This is the covenant sign of my marriage, of my commitment. The wedding ring reminds us that I'm not up for grabs. I belong to someone. Okay? And I'm to be dedicated specifically to that person. Okay? In the covenant that God, that God makes, suzerain, vessel, the implication is that if those people that are in covenant with him go and serve another master that is that is an absolute offense to the king who is giving them blessing and promising them promising them life and blessing and prosperity see that so that covenant cannot be where these people were going to make other commitments to others no it's to be an exclusive relationship likened to the exclusion of all others except our spouse. So here it is. How can we really know how this covenant mentality works? Think about this. How absurd would it be if a man who seems to be faithful all of a sudden gets caught in adultery, cheating on his wife? How would we as Christians, I mean, and even the world, how would they think of that? How would people react, how would the church react, if this adulterer man comes before the church and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, don't judge me, check this out, I have a ring, I'm excused, right? The church should not, should not and it better not, give that man a pass. His covenant sign was invalidated by his infidelity. He broke that covenant. And the ring means nothing. The adulterer man knows that in his heart. Similarly, Paul's indictment to the Jewish people is that, yes, you may have the sign of your covenant with God, but you have invalidated that covenant by your disobedience, by your rebellion. And it's now of zero value. God will be impartial in judging you. So then, how is the true covenant of marriage signified? By wedding ring. 
How is the true covenant of marriage validated? By our fidelity. By keeping our promise of being faithful, loving, forgiving, understanding. How is the true covenant of Abraham signified? Circumcision. <coughs> then how is the true covenant of Abraham validated? By obedience to God. So here Paul holds no punches by saying that the circumcised Jews who are disobedient to God will actually be judged and are worse off than the Gentiles who do obey God. That's, it. That's an extremely offensive thing to say to a Jewish person. As they prided themselves of being, you know, quote, those of the circumcision and those of the uncircumcision. It's like very distinct. They prided themselves in that. Okay? So that's how we know if a covenant sign is validated in truth or if, it's, if it becomes not valid by keeping the promises. Now, what is the basis of true circumcision? Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul breaks the news to the Jewish people in his audience that if you think you have an insurance policy and get against God's judgment on the basis of your circumcision in the flesh, you have completely missed the boat. Again, in a diatribe, which is the literary style, Paul is anticipating some pushback, right? So he has to back it up. Pushback would be something like, well, you're telling us that our circumcision in the flesh is of no value? How could that be? And Paul, his defense here is that this is not something that Paul made up. If the Jewish people truly had studied their scriptures, this should not have been news to them. This, what Paul is revealing to them now, openly and just sort of punching them in the face with, is already in the Old Testament. Let us take a quick look. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That context there in Deuteronomy is God calling his people to repentance, to turn from idolatry, turn from disobedience, and into a sincere and loving obedience to their God. Another thought would be when we are told that God is going to give us an exchange of heart. He's going to take away the heart of stone and put a living heart of flesh. Right? Ezekiel 36. That's again pointing to something greater than just the physical. And Paul is telling the Jewish people here that if they are Jews outwardly only, in other words, they know the law, they are circumcised, but are disobedient, Paul is telling them to their face, you are not real Jews. Again, that is extremely offensive. Their identity as Jewish people is something that they valued most. As a matter of fact, 
is on the basis that they discriminated against other people. The main way in which the Jewish folks showed partiality towards others, especially in, in the time of Jesus, right? Think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious folks. And the implication here is that those who are not Jewish by ethnicity, but obey God, Paul says, those are the true Jews. Now that, that is mind-blowing. Like, I could see their heads exploding, them falling off their chairs when they're hearing this. Again, extremely offensive to Jews. Tell them, you're actually not a Jew. Those dirty pagans that are honoring God, they are true Jews. That, that is just beyond what any Jew would like to hear. Now, Paul also talks about the true basis of true circumcision elsewhere. Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12. Talking about Jesus. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now we'll come back to baptism shortly, but here's a couple of uh, more examples that Paul is not saying anything new. This is already in the Old Testament. Paul is just re-emphasizing that. Let us take a quick look at two more examples. Deuteronomy 10, verses 16 and 17. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. See, that's the same context in which Paul is bringing this up. One last one reference, Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So then... The basis of true circumcision, the way, that, the way that God will see a person as just, as someone whose sin has been forgiven, is this. Here's the key. One who has experienced circumcision of heart. So then, although most, if not all of us here, are not 100% Jewish, the question to us is still... Is my heart circumcised? Has the foreskin of your heart been cut away? Has the dead heart of stone been removed and exchanged with a living heart? Now perhaps some listening, some of us, we may have doubts whether we have a circumcised heart or not. Right? Because that heart, there's still a covering on it. There's, it's still rough. There's so many attachments to the world that have nothing to do with Christ. As a matter of fact, things that offend and keep you away from Christ. 
Is that true of you today? So that we not become fooled like the Jews did, saying, well, we'll be fine. We're circumcised. The equivalent for us, coming back to baptism, would say, well, I was baptized. Or today that we're partaking of the Lord's Supper. Hey, I partook of the Lord's Supper. I made a proclamation of faith. I was raised in a Christian home. But there's no, no fruit, no obedience. That's why I often tell and repeat to my kids. If you love Jesus, you will obey your mom. You will obey your dad. But the fact can remain that we could have outward manifestations, outward proclamations of us being Christians, and yet we are living in an empty religiosity because a spiritual heart surgery has not occurred, has not been done. And please, my friends, please don't be fooled thinking it's okay. God, God will understand. He'll give me a break. I have enough religiosity in my life, baptism, Bible knowledge, church attendance. My brothers and sisters, think about this. God is so holy that he did not spare his own son, but crushed him for the iniquity of sinners. God the Father did not spare his own son. You think he's going to spare you? So then, how can we get this spiritual heart surgery so that we are not deceived? I'll ask you, can the best heart surgeon perform a heart surgery on himself? It's impossible. So can you, my dear friends, perform a spiritual heart surgery to be circumcised of heart? You could do all the outward things. You could, you know, be obedient and be baptized. You can show attendance. You can show Bible knowledge. All those are outward signs. But can you perform heart surgery on yourself, spiritually speaking? Never. Let us go back to verse 29 where it says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. And then there it is. By the Spirit, not by the letter. See, there's an implication. Not outwardly, but it needs to be by the Spirit, inwardly. We are totally then dependent on God that by the power of His Holy Spirit, He may grant us a new heart. Trying to keep rules will only condemn us more. We can't do it. Not because there's anything wrong with God's law or God's instruction, but because there's something wrong with us. We can't keep them. The law of God then is to lead us to a Savior. The one who has kept the law. The one who has been faithful. So that when God's impartiality comes, when we are evaluated or graded, it is not our failure that is taken into account, but the perfection of, of that one who took the test for you and gave you 100% because of his obedience. God is impartial in that perfect obedience 
is the only way out out of being judged as a failure or condemned. We do not have that perfection. So what are we to do? Well, just like God works with covenants, we have a new covenant in which we are promised that God is going to show us grace, mercy, salvation, not by something we do, but by faith in the one who has done it all. Faith in Jesus. So then what do we do? We simply, my brothers and sisters, we simply ask God for mercy. We ask him to give us a circumcised heart. A heart that is alive. A heart from which the love of sin is replaced with the love of God. A heart where instead of bitterness, resentment can be turned into conviction of sin and repentance. A heart where instead of forgiveness towards others, we express humility and forgiveness towards them. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. Ask this of God. Acknowledge that we don't deserve it. Ask Him in faith, taking God in His word, that He will turn no one away that comes to Him with a contrite spirit that seeks Him with humility and brokenness. In faith, my friends, ask God's forgiveness that He may give you a circumcised heart so that your disobedience can turn into obedience, so that you can reject and stop practicing empty religiosity, acknowledging that only by faith in Christ can we obtain the obedience of faith? Referring back to verse 5 in chapter 1. Not obedience of perfection. No, obedience of faith. Which is seen in a perpetual life of repentance. Trusting that Jesus has lived the perfect life. That he died for our sins. That he rose again. So that by faith in him. We can be granted eternal life that as God the Father sees us through the lens through the work of Jesus we are attributed the merits of Christ by faith in our Savior when we cry out to God in this way we become one of his we become a true Jew Paul there in, in the last line of, of this text he uses a play on words when he says the Jew, which is derived from Judah, which means praise. See what Paul is doing there? Those who are truly praised will not be praised from men, meaning in an outward manner, but rather will be praised by God in a spiritual and in an eternal manner. So then, the final question for us today to reflect upon is, does your life show the fruit of a circumcised heart today? This is especially fitting as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. Does my heart show signs of a circumcised heart? 
And if it does not, my brothers and sisters, we are called to constant repentance. As we reflect on that today, may we be joyful, joyous, knowing that the new covenant depends not on our works, but in the works that have done perfectly by Jesus. And in him, we have assurance of eternal life by faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us that you are impartial and that you are a holy God. We thank you, Lord, through your Holy Spirit that we are able to have a circumcised heart. For indeed, that is a work of your spirit. We cannot do it. Grant us, Lord, a circumcised heart that will seek you and obey you by faith. Give us that faith to trust in Christ and to embrace being born again and to live a life that does reflect such obedience, Lord. We cannot do this apart from your mercy, and therefore we plead with you today, Lord, with all our faith, make a circumcised heart in us a reality this day and every day. It is in the name of Jesus that we ask you this. Amen.